This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 341, July the 5th, 1995. This evening, Douglas Murray, Sam Blumenfeld, and Andrew Sandlin and I will be interviewing Sam with regard to education generally, homeschooling, phonics, whatever he wants to discuss with us. Uh, Mark Rushduni is out of town, so he is not with us this evening. Education, of course, is a very important subject. Education and law are basic to any culture, and they reveal the religion of the society, as I have said many times before. It is important, therefore, for us to be interested in education. Samuel Blumenfeld has been active in furthering phonics and homeschooling, not only in the United States, but throughout the English-speaking world. Sam, we're glad to have you with us. Is there anything you'd like to say by way of a general introduction? Well, first I just want to thank you, uh, Rush, for making it possible for me to, to be with you at this easy chair and to tell you how, how delighted I am to be here. Um, well, a lot has happened, you know, in, in the past year as far as homeschooling is concerned. It's grown considerably. Uh, we also have a new Congress that is uh, much more friendly to educational freedom. And as a matter of fact, uh, they're going to get rid of the Department of Education and perhaps, perhaps repeal uh, goals 2000 and HR 6 and all of the other programs that the uh, Clinton administration has, uh, uh, you know, has actually passed. These programs mm -hmm. are on the books. Uh, and I, I was told that uh, their strategy, the strategy of the conservatives, is to defund uh, the education department and these education bills so that they will just fall. Uh, for lack of, of funding. So, so that's very good news to begin with, that at least we're beginning to have the uh, Congress of the United States on our side. And, uh, uh, and so there's, there are great changes in the offing. You know, they say that there's a revolution going on in the, in the United States in the Congress, but uh, so far it's mainly talk. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, though, that they'll be able to uh, carry it out. What do you see happening in the homeschool movement? Well, it's growing rapidly. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, this uh, the next uh, weekend we'll we'll see the uh, probably the largest homeschool convention in the United States in uh, Anaheim, California, and uh, this has been a steady pattern of growth, and it's mainly uh, uh, Christian. The homeschool movement, I would say, is 85 percent Christian. Uh, there are some secular. Uh, you know, and atheists involved, but they really don't, uh, they, they really are not the backbone of the movement. The movement is basically Christian. And that's wonderful for, uh, for uh, not only the families, but also for uh, Christian reconstruction in this country because they represent such a clean break with the humanist institutions, uh, these statist institutions. And also it represents a shift in in the view of sovereignty. You see, the Christian homeschoolers see their family as under God's sovereignty, and that's why they resist 
state control, even though they generally comply with the state's laws or requirements, such as informing the authorities that they're homeschooling and that sort of thing. But there are many Christian homeschoolers who have simply gone underground. I mean, they just won't have anything to do with the authorities. I don't know what your opinion of this is, Rush, whether you think this is good or bad, but we know that there is a reluctance on the part of many Christian homeschoolers to even inform the state of what they're doing. And if they live in remote areas, I guess they can do that. When I'm asked about this, what should they do, I generally prefer people to comply with the basic rules that exist. And, of course, there's the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which handles cases where parents are having difficulties with the states. And usually just a letter from the Homeschool Legal Defense Association will get the authorities off their backs, because many of the authorities, the superintendents and people who run school districts, are abysmally uninformed about the law. And one thing I'm sure that you have found out, Rush, in all of your travels and appearances at homeschool court trials, is the abysmal ignorance of the judges concerning this. That's been a great revelation, is to realize how ignorant these judges are. You would assume that they know something about basic constitutional law, and they don't. But I think the most important point is this shift in view of sovereignty, that the Christian family understands that they are under God's sovereignty and not the state's sovereignty. And that makes a tremendous difference in how they conduct their family life. And this is all to the good because it has its ramifications in other areas. Because once you set your family right with God, then you want to set your nation right with God. I mean, that's the next step. And, of course, the secularists and the atheists in our society are completely baffled by what's going on. It's amazing. The other night I was watching C-SPAN, and they had a review of the Nation magazine. You've heard of the Nation magazine, Rush, you know, that very left-wing magazine. They had a forum on May 1st, 1995, in which they reviewed the history of the last 50 years. And it was all from that left-wing point of view. Now, there you had a group of people. You had Molly Ivins, you know, of Texas, and Christopher Hitchens, who addressed the audience as comrades. Cornel West, the black philosopher at Harvard, and a couple of other people. Studs Terkel, you know, who is just about as red as they can get, you know. And you could just see that these people are so totally atheistic that it's so profoundly atheistic that they have no way of understanding what's happening in America, so they tend to label it all fascism, you know, fascism. So in other words, Christianity is fascism to them because, you know, and it was just amazing to listen to these people rattle off history. For example, 
Um, there was this uh, fellow Lipson, Robert Lipson, who was talking about America's guilt in having dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Uh, and uh, thinking about that, I, I thought to myself, I had just seen a film about what had happened in Okinawa, the slaughter of American soldiers in trying to take Okinawa, and the psychology of the Japanese troops, the suicidal psychology they had, and that the purpose of the, of the bomb was to end the war quickly and to stop any further uh, need to uh, have Americans killed. And yet, they are pulling this, this guilt trip on Americans. So you get this left wing that is out in outer space. They have no idea what's going on. And here are the Christians in this country who are slowly reasserting uh, their worldview and the sovereignty of God and this is going to have a, a very widespread impact in, in the years ahead, I believe. You mentioned uh, that some of the Christian homeschoolers are refusing to comply even on the most harmless things in states where I know the state gives no trouble to homeschoolers. They refuse to notify the state that they are homeschooling. Now, I think this is a serious mistake and it leads to uh, results comparable to the nation crowd. Having once said well, we will have nothing to do with the state with regard to homeschooling, they go on to taxation and become tax protesters. Then they become uh, open to other extremist groups, not in all cases, yes. but enough of them. Groups like the uh, British Israel or Identity Peoples, yes. which puts them in uh, a relationship to the Aryan Nation and other groups. Yes. Yeah. So by their isolationism and their insistence on reading the scenario in the worst possible way, they drift further and further afield and I think they do themselves not a little damage. Yes. Well, it's comparable to this notion of, of churches refusing to incorporate themselves yes. because of their fear that this, this means that they're submitting themselves uh, to government uh, control, whereas church incorporation preceded yes. uh, the so-called uh, corporation laws that uh, you know are usually applied to well, commercial enterprises. Yes, it's a recent attempt by the IRS to say that church incorporation is a favor from them. Yes, and we need to work to reestablish the premise that existed from early years in American history up until after World War Two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I've gotten letters. Uh, uh, I got a le a recently a letter from a parent who wanted to know whether or not he should uh, apply for social security numbers for his children, uh, because according to the law, if you want to put them on your IRS, uh, on your uh, uh, deduct them as a dependent on your income tax, they have to have social security numbers. And to tell you frankly, Rush, I don't quite know how to answer. Mm -hmm. Would you kindly do the job for me? Well, <clears throat> I don't 
believe in social security. I think it's an evil. I think it's going to collapse. On the other hand, we have more important things to fight about than that. There are too many people who will fight on every little thing they can, little and big. Yes. And we have to be selective. We can't war against everything that Congress has passed in the last 60 years. Uh, well, as a result, such people become ineffective. They're no good to our side or to our cause. Yes. Because they're wasting their time on trifles. Yes, what they should do is get involved politically and get the kind of people in Congress that will change the law. Yes. I have had many people tell me how bad things are, and when I ask them, how much do you contribute to political campaigns, the answer is almost invariably nothing. Yes. Well, how can you change the system if you won't support those who are working to change it? Yeah. We have too many uh, people in the Christian camp who are really unwilling to work. They simply want to make a grandstand play, a protest, mm -hmm. a, a holier-than-thou attitude possesses them, and it isn't good. Well, go ahead, Andrew. I don't think it should be lost that we're talking here really about two separate uh, approaches to the problem. There's the Anabaptist approach, which is one of isolation, against the Reformed approach, which is one of transformation. Yeah, as, very Niebuhr, good. as Niebuhr pointed out, and while we disagree with his theology, he wrote a book, Christ and Culture, which did have a number of excellent observations along this line. The Anabaptists are constantly wanting to isolate themselves, and they're essentially escapists. Mm -hmm. And so many of them I know of, they, know of, they oppose them, marriage licenses and driver's licenses and all that sort of thing. And uh, in some ways they, they have some sincerity, but the problem is when you ask them, well, what are you going to do positively to rebuild culture? Well, they don't feel called to that, you see. And that's, we have to distinguish between the Anabaptist approach and the Reformed approach. Our approach is Reformed. We're not just cursing the darkness. We want to provide light. So. Absolutely. That makes all the difference is to try to change things. And, and the interesting thing about homeschool is that more and more of them are getting involved in politics, especially mm -hmm. the young people now who, are, who have been homeschooled realize that they are responsible for their culture and they're responsible for the future of this nation. And... If it's going to be changed, they're going to have to do the changing. So I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, the future where, where it comes to the homeschooling uh, uh, Christians in, in the United States. I've talked to a couple of legislators, and they're eager to get homeschooled uh, young people as interns uh, working in their offices and uh, so that they can learn the system from the inside how it works. It's great training. Yes, yeah. They are, uh, they're very competent people. The beauty of the home school is that they're so much better than the kids who come out of, uh, certainly the public schools and, and also out of Christian schools. Now, there are many fine Christian schools, but on the other hand, there are many that are not all that good. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, the, but I think the most important feature of homeschooling is what it does for the parents. Yes and the kind of family that it creates, the kind of family life. Uh, it's a totally different, totally different thing. We've really never had it before, quite in this way, uh, because uh, it's much more organized. There are many more programs available 
fathers take a greater interest in their children. That's really very important, is this uh, re- resurgence of the, of the paternal responsibility mm-hmm. and of the paternal interest. And I think that uh, you can't have a Christian civilization where the fathers are out to lunch. They've got to be they've got to be the leaders of their family they've got to be the the spiritual leaders of their families and one of the beautiful things about many Christian homeschool families is that they have their devotions and their Bible study and uh, fathers take an active role and that has created a much healthier image of the father than what we see on television you know what's been you know the usual fare Well, not too many years ago, the universities and states were distrustful of uh, homeschool students. Now, the states have tests. Oh, yes. And the homeschool students can take them. Three of our grandchildren took them recently. One of them age 14, the other two 16. And all three passed the high school equivalency test and they found the test to be easy Mm -hmm. well the states now know they're getting superior students when they get these homeschool students they're eager to have them yes as a matter of fact at this conference that I uh, spoke at in in Florida there were two exhibits from universities the University of Florida had a table there handing out literature to parents and the University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were recruiting football players, but, uh, but they certainly are interested in recruiting homeschoolers. And back in Massachusetts, the uh, Boston University now has uh, exhibits at homeschool fairs. And I know that um, Christian, uh, Pensacola Christian College aggressively uh, seeks homeschool students. Uh, and Bob Jones University and Hillsdale and others. So uh, the universities um, are beginning to uh, want these youngsters and because they are so very good and uh, we've had uh, cases of homeschoolers getting scholarships at the academies, you know, like uh, Annapolis and the Air Force uh, uh, Academy. So they're doing beautifully academically as well as socially and uh, and morally and spiritually. Of course, the social issue is one that's always brought up, you know, what about socialization? And that's a perennial uh, question that's, uh, that's asked by the public schoolers and by people at large, you know, well, what about socialization? Well, you find the interesting thing in homeschooling families, especially if there are a lot of siblings, is that uh, the children get to know one another much better. They become good friends of each other. They help one another. And the socialization at home is much healthier than the so-called socialization that takes place in school, where you have the older kids associating only with their group of of their peers and the younger ones associating with their peers. And so they drift apart. The the family drifts apart because they begin to establish loyalties and bonds with strangers outside of the family. And, of course, then they begin to have secrets Mm -hmm. from the family. Mm -hmm. And they develop uh, an entire, uh, almost an antagonism 
to the family prying into their private lives, you That's see. Right. Whereas in the home school, there is no such thing as privacy. Right. <laughs> the public schools are a warring covenant. They That's really are at war against the family. Yes, so. de very definitely, and, and purposefully, too. The fallacy in this idea of socialization, a very evil fallacy, is that socialization is to be with a peer group. That's right. Well, they meet their peer group in the neighborhood. They meet them in Sunday school. They meet them in the playground. What the child needs is socialization with adults. Exactly. And this is what we are denying to children. That's right. The important thing uh, is that they learn that it's an adult world and they have to join that adult world. They've got to learn to behave as adults and to appreciate adults. Well, they go to church and they're siphoned off for That's junior right. church. That's right. Things like that. And in one way or another today, the real needed socialization with the adult world is denied. And then they wonder why these children grow up and act like kids for the rest of their life. Yeah. This produces a juvenile culture. Yes. yes, it really does. Well, I'll tell you, one of the most dangerous things that it produces also uh, in the inner cities are, are gangs. Mm -hmm. Yes. The gangs are formed in the schools among peers. And one of the reasons why you have these gangs is because uh, uh, many of them are antisocial. Mm -hmm. They've been badly miseducated uh, in their schools. Many of them can't read. They're functionally illiterate. And they get together and, and they, in, they get involved in antisocial behavior, delinquency, as we know in Los Angeles, which is a prime example of what can happen to a community where the kids are isolated among themselves and must, it's like prisoners. That's right. I mean, you've got this compulsory school attendance law that says they've got to be together. And uh, they, they form these groups. Now, each one of these youngsters who has been frustrated by the inability to read is very angry, very angry at the system. Each one of them is like a little walking time bomb. You don't know when they're going to explode. Now, if you have 100,000 of them in a city like Los Angeles in gangs, uh, you know, perpetrating mayhem, all you need is a spark like the Rodney King incident yes. to just create a social explosion that's just as devastating as the earthquakes that they have yes. there. And look what happened there. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that all of that was caused by this built-up, pent-up frustration through miseducation because mm -hmm. these kids have come out of the schools with no, uh, with no employable skills. They can't right. read. They can't write. Uh, they can't add. They can't even speak English anymore. That's I mean, right. they speak this new patois. <laughs> In a sense, there's greater segregation today than there ever has been because you're right. getting a different language pattern. Right. You're getting a dialect. You're getting uh, something which we never had and among the blacks. they're working toward that. This, yeah. is also, this is something that is being strongly supported. They want their own separate identity. Yeah, black that English. Language is one of those examples. Right. We are creating a culture of immaturity. That's right. Yes. And I was reminded today of how different things once were in reading about uh, President Andrew Jackson in a book written by someone who is not on our side.
But at one point in the controversy over the U.S. Bank, a large mob with support from members of Congress decided to march on the White House and the Capitol and let their demands be made known. And Andrew Jackson said very calmly to the congressman who came to warn him of what was about to happen, they will be most welcome when they come. I will post the heads of a number of them on the spikes and the fence around the uh, White House, and I will hang the others higher than Haman. <laughs> and he said, this government will not be bullied by mobs. Well, that ended the uh, march on Washington because they knew that Jackson was a man of his word. Mm -hmm. Now consider how different that is. He regarded it as an act of colossal arrogance and immaturity. Mm -hmm. And he had only one reaction to that. Mm -hmm. It was lawlessness, it was rebellion, he would deal with it as such. Well, it's interesting, the Democrats who regard Jackson as one of their heroes, in fact their greatest man, together with Thomas Jefferson, never cite that episode. Yeah. Well, well I, I can understand why, <laughs> you know. Sam, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, one of the things I would think that would be difficult for a homeschooled uh, child or uh, a uh, Christian uh, school child in the primary grades who goes on to a state-run or public uh, high school is that uh, they're going to pull the grade curve up Mm -hmm. And this inevitably causes some hostility. There's a lot of hostility, for instance, in universities. Uh, white students, for instance, that go to University of California have an extremely difficult time because the Asian students who study very hard and work very hard and get top grades, they pull the curve up so high it, it forces uh, A students in public school down to C's when they get into a college. It makes it very difficult for them, for them. How would you counsel a youngster who is subjected to that pressure? Well, all I, I would say certainly to a homeschooler is to do your best. They usually are pretty good and they're usually very self-motivated because they realize at home that uh, mother isn't standing over them like a lecturer in, in a school. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're quite independent and self-motivated, and I think they would very, very well uh, handle that situation. I don't think there'd be any real trouble. I don't see any particular trouble there. But it is interesting that the uh, Asians in America uh, are doing so well, and that's because of a very strong motivation. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if it's a matter of natural talents or not. I, I haven't read The Bell Curve. I don't know if any of you have read The Bell Curve mm -hmm. and what you think of that book, but uh, the one thing that bothers me about The Bell Curve, uh, particularly where it relates to the blacks, is that there is so much miseducation going on that I don't think you're getting a fair picture of what their intelligence uh, is uh, because uh, you take... Uh, you take white youngsters who can be just as seriously dumbed down 
by the methods being used in the schools. So I think it's 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 very unfair to uh, judge today's uh, young blacks on the basis of today's education. Douglas mentioned the <clears throat> remarkable performance of the Asian students. There is an aspect here which I mentioned oh about a year ago that would uh, be important for you to think about. Asian students, whether they come from some part of Asia or from the United States, go to the university with the assistance very often of uh, aunts and uncles, grandparents, cousins, and the like. If they are outstanding as students, they get total support from the family. The family invests in them. They are expected to repay the family in time. If they do an outstanding job and their grades are exceptional, before they graduate, they may be given an automobile by an appreciative family. Now, this ties in with something that 15 or more years ago we published in the Calcedon Report and we hoped it would get quite a reaction. It was by a professor of economics at uh, Cambridge, England, who proposed family trusts as a solution to a great many problems. And he said families should set up a treasury. They should begin to take care of their more brilliant students. They should do everything they can to further the education of the students as well as to help those who show evidences of being good entrepreneurs to get them started. In other words, the family has a duty to the generations coming up. Well, sad, but nobody paid attention to that article, which I regard as one of the most important we ever printed. Now, I think we are going to fall further and further behind until we appreciate superior young people in our families. Those who show abilities as entrepreneurs or as students or whatever, we're doing nothing to help them. It's sink or swim. And in a world where for a student to get an education means a vast sum of money, oh, yes. uh, it's devastating for the student to be thrown into that kind of a world. Yes. It's like being thrown off a ship into the ocean right. during a storm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do believe that Christians should set up family trusts. They should begin to accumulate a treasury. Mm -hmm. They should begin to assist those in need. If they don't have enough money to do it at present, they should accumulate it little by little for the future. But they have a duty. And we're told in Scripture that a good man lays up an inheritance for his children's children. Yes. Well, that's an excellent idea. As a matter of fact, it's an idea that's worth circulating 
among homeschoolers. And I, uh, is it possible to reprint that article, Rush? And oh, make sure. it available to sure is. Because, uh, you know, at these homeschool conventions, they have many workshops. And uh, that would make a wonderful subject of a oh, workshop, yes. is a family why, uh, trust. Why not reprint it in your uh, yes, newsletter? Yes, I could have a copy of it. And I'd then make it available to yes. anyone who wants it. Yeah, that's an excellent idea because you're absolutely right. It's the family's uh, job, it's their duty to prepare these young people and to help them achieve the, the very highest uh, levels of their uh, learning and also to uh, foster careers. Yes. But you know, another interesting thing is that uh, is happening among homeschoolers is the development of family businesses, uh, family enterprises. And, uh, uh, and, and it's interesting when you go to these homeschool conventions and you see what the various families are doing to service the homeschool community. Right. I know there's one family that, that, manu that manufactures what they call plain clothes, you know, very simple dresses and clothes for uh, Christians who don't want to buy the, these, you know, frilly kind of things that you find in the uh, in the your usual uh, retail shops. Others are doing all sorts of things, publishing newsletters and books, and getting involved in nutritional in foods and nutrition. Uh, so there are, there are no end of ideas that uh, homeschoolers are beginning to respond to. And uh, family that works together, you know, often uh, uh, learns a lot about economics together. Mm -hmm. And certainly today's kids have to know about what they call the real world, econo uh, mm -hmm. you know, money, how to handle money, what money is all about, uh, which... They rarely uh, get that kind of information in schools, but uh, they can certainly get it at home. Plus, familial love is conducive to learning. Right. We've seen that in our family, that uh, a child knows that a mother or father is taking out his time to train them. There's really that element of affection that impresses the what is taught on the little heart and mind of the child. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's very important. <coughs> and... Uh, but, but I think the most important uh, uh, change that is taking place, of course, is the uh, the re uh, well the reinstitution of of intensive phonics as the chief way of teaching children to yes. read in America, because as you know that's fallen by the wayside over the years, and the schools have been using uh, now they use whole language, what they call whole mm -hmm. language and invented spelling where the kids are, are encouraged to start writing before they know even how to read, before they know how to hold a pen, and they're just told to write. I mean, they don't know how to form the letters, they don't know how to spell anything, and uh, so the kids are supposed to invent their spellings, and, and my, my answer is, well, why should they invent spelling when They've got the dictionary. The spellings have already been yeah. standardized. So why have kids go through the, this incredible, stupid process of trying to invent spellings, which usually mm -hmm. are pretty awful, and then expecting them to change all on their own? I mean, the yeah. purpose of education is to teach children how to th do things correctly. And... Uh, 
to spend two years doing things incorrectly simply creates such bad habits that are impossible to change after that that yes. uh, that uh, period of time. One of the things that I that I uh, uh, tell parents these days is to teach their children to write cursive to begin with. Yes. Don't teach them to print. <clears throat> teach them to write cursive. And of course, most parents say, we never heard such a thing. I mean, all of us are telling our you're teaching our kids, you know, ball and stick. Mm -hmm. And I and I I remind them that people of my generation all learned cursive first. I mean, it was, and they all said, "Well, can you do both? Can you actually learn to read and write cursive?" I said, "Of course. I mean, you know, we're no smarter than than today's children, yet we're able to do it very nicely." And uh, it's interesting how uh, there's such a gap in knowledge that people don't know what the way things were 50 years ago. That's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's as well, if... They the history, you know, it's right. so pervasive. I mean, the educators have done an, an incredible job of destroying the past, of past practice. Yeah, quite intentionally, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah. If I may go back to the matter of the family trust, uh, the usual opinion is that it is something very expensive. However, it's exactly the opposite. In California, you can get it for something within the range of $500. What is happening is that in uh, the past decade, more and more wealthy people have used a variety of devices to avoid probate. Yes, yes. So, it has left the ordinary person of modest means uh, alone to face probate. Well, since the uh, amount of money involved going into probate when someone dies is a rather limited amount, it has become a nuisance for the courts to handle the probate. It's more work than it's worth to the state, mm -hmm. even though they take a cut. So, they have set up family trusts, so that anyone who wants to, of modest means, can set it up to protect their estate and to hand it on to the next generation. Now, a great many states have done this. It is something that people should investigate in whatever state they live in to see what can be done to protect their widows and their children in the time of death from a costly probate that will strip them of most of what they have. Mm -hmm. So I do urge all those who are listening to go to a lawyer and investigate the matter of a family trust or whatever is comparable to it in their state. I believe some books have been written on the subject on how to set up trusts. Yes, these are on a national level. Yeah. And every state has its own laws. Uh -huh. It doesn't take much in the way of cost to go to a lawyer and find out what the status is in your state. Yeah. Well, I think probably one of the reasons why this hasn't come up yet among homeschoolers is that you're dealing with rather young families yes. with young children and they don't quite think as far ahead as they should. But, mm -hmm. but uh, let's face it, the, the years go by you know, faster than we imagine.
And before you know it, you're facing yeah. that sort of a problem of how to handle your inheritance. Let's go back to that phonics discussion. I think yeah. that a lot of people don't recognize that that whole word, whole language method is not merely a different approach, you know, but really is ideologically subversive. So, Sam, what would you say to those who say, well, I mean, they're going to read anyway. Uh, let's just have them read this way. It's the only difference of technique. What would you say to those who say well, that? Well, it isn't that. It isn't they're going to read anyway. They're not going to read anyway. That's the problem. You see, because the whole language uh, method of teaching reading produces what we call a holistic reflex. In other words, the children are taught to look at our words, our English words, as uh, little pictures, as whole configurations. And the result is that they develop this, this reflex of looking at all words as whole little pictures. And when they develop, when they acquire this reflex, it prevents them from seeing words in their phonetic form. Uh, as a matter of fact, it becomes a block against seeing words phonetically. And therefore, you could say that this holistic reflex causes dyslexia. Because that's what dyslexia is, the inability to read our words in their phonetic uh, structure. And doesn't it, too, really lock them into a specific vocabulary so that they don't have the ability when they that's come it. upon new words to, for, to, to pronounce them and understand them? Exactly. In other words, they memorize words. For example, I was told about this class that spent a whole day learning the word little. Just one word, little, you know, and they spent a whole day on it. And what did they learn? Little. Just one, yeah, little, and, and just that one word. But you can't learn to read English that way. First of all, our alphabetic system requires intensive systematic phonics to learn how to read it. It's just, uh, it, it's what it is. I, I mean, if, if we had an, uh, an ideographic writing system, or a, even a logographic system like the Chinese. You see, each character in Chinese stands for a word, a specific mm -hmm. word. But it's still a character, you know, and you have to memorize it. And they've got thousands of those little characters that have to be memorized. Mm -hmm. Whereas the alphabet, which was invented uh, around uh, 3,500 years ago, is based on a, a remarkable discovery. Someone discovered that all of human language, everything we say is based on, is comprised of a small number of irreducible speech sounds. And so that individual decided uh, rather than uh, have this ideographic system of writing which required years of study and lots of memorization, easily forgotten all of these characters and symbols, why not create a small set of symbols to stand for the irreducible speech sounds of the language and then you'll have a very simple means of transcribing the spoken word into written form and an equally simple means of converting the written language back to unspoken form. And so the first alphabet was invented. Nobody knows exactly who invented it or where it came from. Some people say the Canaanites, some people say the Phoenicians, some people say the Israelites. All we know is that uh, the most important work to come out of alphabetic writing is the Holy Scripture. That's right. I mean, the, 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 the archaeologists, who seem all, all of whom seem to be atheists, mm -hmm. always attribute the invention of the alphabet to Phoenician businessmen who wanted to keep commercial records. And they never discuss the fact that the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, was really the first work 
uh, important work to be written alphabetically. And uh, Rush made a point the, uh, the other day about uh, that, uh, about the, the word, about God's word, that we know the word through the voice, mm-hmm. through speech, yes. and that we had to have an accurate means of putting that speech on paper before the word of God could be known accurately and precisely. And so it was very important, the the invention of the alphabet is very important. I always point out to people that uh, Moses, of course, was educated by the Egyptians, his Egyptian princess. And yet when he went up to Mount Sinai and God wrote the tablets with his finger, he wrote them in alphabetic uh, writing, alphabetic script. And I always ask the question, who taught God the alphabet? (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Yes. And, and it's it's a it's a mystery. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a Canadian scientist who, not too many years ago, wrote a paper on uh, speech that it is a learned habit, and uh, he felt the same about uh, written language, and he felt that it was traceable back to Adam. Oh yes, uh, the original language it yes. probably came from. As a matter of fact, and writing. Yes, and the Bible says these are the generations of Adam, and the Hebrew word means these are the family records of Adam. So I think the Genesis is a collection of family records. Uh, Donald J. Wiseman, uh, particularly brilliant uh, British scholar wrote a book about that particular thesis some years ago. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, Noah Webster, in in the introduction to his magnificent dictionary, uh, goes into the history of language, and he says, very frankly, he says that language was a gift from God, and that it was an immediate gift that was given to Adam, so that he could communicate with Adam, so that the first purpose of language was... uh, for Adam to be able to know God. Uh, and then the second purpose, of course, was so that he could know the world objectively, because what did God do? God brought before Adam all of the animals, and he told Adam to name the animals. Well, this turned Adam into a scientist, yes. into an observer, mm-hmm. an objective observer mm-hmm. of reality. To name in the Hebrew means to classify. Right. So there he was, not only classifying the animals, but also he was a lexicographer in that he had to invent names of these different animals, which, and I suppose he wrote them down yes. <laughs> in order to yes. remember, you know, in some way or other. So you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, can you talk about the, uh, the rate of reading of uh, people who have been taught this by this whole language method versus phonics. Well, you mean the speed? Speed of reading. Well, I'll tell you, the whole whole language people, if they're reading something simple, can read rather rapidly, but they they leave out words that are there, they put in words that aren't there, they skip words, they mutilate words, they uh, guess at words, they substitute words. So their form of reading is very inaccurate, and, and what they're doing is is editing as they go along. They're trying to uh, 
in a sense, figure out what this author says, and in a sense, they're creating the message rather than reading the message accurately because they can't read accurately. Now, a phonetic reader can read it in, at any speed that he wants. Uh, uh, a prolific write, uh, a reader, say for example, like um, Dr. Rushdoony, probably does a lot of uh, scanning when he's going through a very thick book and he wants and he's looking for something that's important. And that's one of the methods of, of speeding up reading when you're trying to go through a, a huge text. But anything of importance you're going to read with at about the same speed in which you speak, because you're going to be um, you're going to be reviving the voice of the writer and the writer is going to be speaking to you and he will be speaking to you at a pace that you can understand you know it's, it's like music you can't speed up a Beethoven symphony can you I mean you know it's got to be played at that uh, at that speed it, it doesn't sound like Beethoven <laughs> and you can't speed up poetry you can't speed up a magnificent Shakespeare soliloquy you can't speed it up the only time you speed reading is if you're doing a dissertation on garbage collection then you might want to speed it up <laughs> so here's the rub if, if this whole language method doesn't work if it's been proven to fail why is it so popular? Why was it ever employed in the first place? That's where we really get down to where the rubber hits the road. Well, of course, uh, when you when you look at the whole uh, picture of the, the way that uh, reading uh, instruction has been changing, I just say you have to really go back to John Dewey in the early part of this uh, century and late part of the last century. And of course, the uh, Dewey and his colleagues were very much uh, interested in changing America from a capitalist, individualistic, believing nation into a socialist, atheist, and a humanist society. And they were determined to use the school system in which to do that. Now, the interesting thing about these gentlemen, these progressives, is that they all came from good Christian families. And uh, they were determined to bring about socialism because they wanted to prove that they were right and that the Bible was wrong. And they felt that by bringing about socialism, they can prove that man was basically good, that there was no such thing as you know, innate depravity or original sin, or anything, that the, you know, the whole story of the Garden of Eden was, was uh, completely fiction, was, was myth. And so they embarked on this messianic mission to change America through the school system because they knew that American adults were not about to give up their, their you know, their free enterprises and their uh, religion and all of that. And, uh, and Rush points out in his, in his great book, the, Me the Messianic Character of American, of American Education, that there was this strong messianic motivation because they were determined to prove that the Bible was wrong and that they were right because they knew that if they were if they were wrong and the Bible was right, they knew where they'd be going. I mean, they, they knew they came from Christian families, so they were quite acquainted with the consequences of such, uh, of such heresy. In any case, John Dewey did an analysis of the education system and came to the conclusion that high literacy was the culprit behind religion, uh, behind orthodoxy, behind... Uh, uh, capitalism and individualism, that high literacy produced 
people who can think for themselves, stand on their own two feet and think for themselves and did not need the collective. In other words, they can work as individuals, they could learn as individuals. Now they wanted to create a collective society, so they said we've got to change the way reading is taught and create a lower level of literacy. A dependent society. Yes, and we've got to stress socialization. So they shifted the emphasis from uh, phonetic reading, which produces this high literacy, to this look-say method, which produces a lower level of literacy, and uh, the emphasis is put on, on teamwork and, and on uh, socialization and on group think and group activity, and, and of course that's what we have in the schools today. So that's the origin of this shift. It, it was a f based on socialist philosophy, and today it is it is very distinctly a, a political thing. So it was, it was a consciously subversive work. This is certainly merely a matter of well, let's prefer this method. Of reading oh, to absolutely, this absolutely. Yeah. Well, corporate, this was deliberate. corporate culture is bought into this idea too. You've got uh, loan committees at banks. There's there's no individual in the bank anymore that seems to be smart enough to be able to figure out whether the bank wants to loan you money or not. They have to have a committee. And in major corporations, everything is done by consensus of a of a large group. Uh, this corporate think thing seems to have carried over into the business world it too. Very well have, uh, and uh, you have to understand also that out of this progressive movement developed what they call group dynamics, uh, which was invented basically by uh, Kurt Lewin a psychologist who came out of Germany and emigrated to the United States in the mid-30s, and he was the one who invented sensitivity training, and uh, which is, was considered by Carl Rogers as the greatest invention of the uh, in psychology of the 20th century, because that's a, the basis of the whole encounter movement, you know, the mm -hmm. est and all of that was the uh, sensitivity training and uh, what, what's the other thing? Uh, values clarification. Mm -hmm. Values clarification. These are the two tools that have been used by the educators to uh, to change the the minds of the children. And and, and Benjamin Bloom wanted the schools to uh, to to create a, a total reorganization of the child's mind. In other words, a Christian child was considered um, not insane or neurotic, but undesirable, let's put it that way. Did you and read so about that, this yeah. fellow who uh, the federal government hired to, to uh, instill these uh, devices that you're talking about into the FAA? Here recently they had a, one of the magazine programs on television was talking about this guy who was conducting these uh, sensitivity training. Oh, yes. And, uh, well, they use them in large corporations, sensitivity training. I've heard of, of airline pilots who have had to sit through these things, and uh, some of them have uh, been very, very opposed to them. Salesmen as well. Yes, yeah, salesmen, mm -hmm. you know. So these techniques, uh, group dynamic techniques, now permeate our society. And incidentally, it was the National Education Association which sponsored Kurt Lewin's uh, National Training Laboratory. At Beth, in Bethel, Maine, which in the late 40s began getting loads of teachers and administrators coming for their 
sensitivity training sessions and their values clarification sessions. So you're now dealing with several generations of administrators and corporate executives who've been through all of this. This is simply sophisticated brainwashing. Yes. Our time is up. Thank you all for listening, and God bless you.